This is a bit of a special message for me. As many of you know, this is my last message that I'll ever preach at Redemption Durham, at least as a staff. I don't know if I'll be invited back after this. I hope so. But if you haven't heard by now, uh, I accepted the call to be the lead pastor of Redemption Newmarket, and I'll be starting there on June 1st in just a few short weeks. And so as you prepare for a message, knowing that it's your last, it changes a few things for you. It changes the way that you prepare that message. One thing it does is that it gives you a lot of liberty to say things you might not feel open to say when you had a boss that you were kind of worried about. But in two weeks' time, Pastor Ian's no longer going to be my boss. And so as I thought about this message, I had that in my mind. I also had this in my mind. Pastor Ian's not here this morning. He's not even in the province, so I'm not going to get tackled unless he commissioned an elder to do something like that. And so in light of all this, I've titled the message as this. Three things I've always wanted to say, but haven't been able to until now. So you guys can put your Bibles away. We're not going to need those this morning. Pastor Ian's gone. Here's point one. Some of you guys were ready for that message, weren't you? Some of you guys were like, okay, let's get into it. Gossip magazine. I'm kidding. But here is the reality. This is my last message as a staff at Redemption Durham. And last messages do give you a special and kind of unique opportunity to reflect. And so I want you to understand that this message really, it's, it's a really odd message for me. I've never preached a message like this. But in a lot of ways, it's very testimonial. It's going to be very different from the preaching we, we, we hear week in and week out. I think God's Word, and what we're going to see in this passage in Philippians chapter 1, and you can open your Bibles there if you have them, and I hope you do, is God, God's Word gives us time to be thankful, time to reflect, and time to think about the future. This is what Scripture models for us. Now, the life and blood of this church is really expositional preaching, preaching that uh, transforms lives by applying the Word of God to the heart. And I want to do that this afternoon, but I maybe want to do it in a different way. I want to share for you the testimony of God's grace that my wife Amber and I have experienced here at Redemption for the last eight years. And maybe if I can just pastorally shepherd you in this way, what I desire for God to accomplish in your life is to hear of the grace that he has shown me and my wife and my family. And to spur that on in you a desire to dig deeper into fellowship in the life of the church. And so we're going to spend our time in Philippians chapter 1, and I trust that as you see what God did in my life, and as you see what God did in the fellowship between the Apostle Paul and the church of Philippi, you're going to be encouraged. When Amber and I think about this church, if we could boil down our almost eight years that we've spent here into one maybe phrase, we would boil it down to this, that it's been an overwhelming joy. I'm honest when I say that, and I still say this, that sometimes I feel like I have to pinch myself. It's, it's honestly been a joy for us to be at this church and to serve on staff at this church, especially. I look around this room and I see the faces of so many people who God has used to have such a significant impact in my own life. I can look at people right now who have, at times, spoken the truth in love in a significant way that has changed me. I've spoken, I, I look at people and I see people who maybe in the deepest time of our need have been the helping hand of Jesus. 
I look at people who have been examples for me of what it means to be a godly husband, of what it means to be a godly parent. I also look around and I see the angry faces of people who have helped me move four times, and I haven't helped them move once. And to those people, I want to say, I'm going to need your help again in a few months. (laughs) But the reality is, is over the last eight years, we have done life together. And if I could just describe it with one word, I would say it's been a joy. This church and all that God has done in Amber and I through this church has been one of the greatest, most major sources of joy in the last eight years. And as Amber and I have plugged into this church for the past eight years, we realize that this is, this is normal. It's normal when you are involved in the fellowship of the church, when you're plugged into the church, it's normal for this to be hard. It should be hard. This is why when so many of you have said, oh, this is such a sad thing, I've said, well, I'm, I'm kind of glad that it's sad. Like when they announced it, I was glad that nobody was like fist pumping, say, saying, yeah, let's get him out of here. This is normal. It's normal for us to experience this fellowship, and it's normal for us for this to be hard because as we think about God's work in our life, we shouldn't be able to separate that from the church that we are involved in. And so let me encourage you, as you hear the testimony of what God has done in me and Amber's life, would you dig deeper into the church? Dig deeper into the fellowship of the church. This is my heart for you. Maybe just one application from this whole message is that you would desire to plug into the source of joy that is the church. This is what the church had been for Paul, the church of Philippi. In one of the most significant moments of suffering in his life, what we're going to see in Philippians 1 verses 3 to 11 is that the church had been this great source of joy for him. And in Philippians 1, Paul is in chains. He's in jail. So great is Paul's suffering that at the end of Philippians 1, he's going to be weighing whether it's better just to die and to depart and be with Christ or to live in the suffering that he's living under. He even says that it would be better to depart and be with Christ in this moment. And yet, in the darkness of his suffering, I wonder, in the darkness of his cell, there is this bright ray of of hope for Paul. And it was the joy that was produced in him by the church of Philippi. And so my question is this. What, is it, what kind of church does it take to produce in our greatest moments of suffering, in our deepest moments of need, what kind of church does it take to produce this kind of joy in us? And maybe more specifically for us this afternoon, What kind of church has Redemption Durham been to my wife and I, as it's been such a pillar of joy for us over these last eight years? Now, here's the first thing I want you to see about the joy-producing church. The joy-producing church, it pursues a fellowship that is founded on the gospel. Now, the beginning of Philippians really follows a, a common form for Paul, where he has a greeting, and then he enters into a time of thanksgiving and prayer. But this isn't just like a kind of fake thankfulness that some of us kind of experience around the dinner table when we say grace. This isn't just formula for Paul. What we see is that there's real authenticity in Paul's thankfulness. So much so that look at what we're going to read in verse 8. When he thanks God for the church, he says this, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This isn't just formula. This is Paul's heartfelt thankfulness for the church. It's deep and it's an intense thankfulness. So look at what he says in verses 3 and 4. He says, I thank my God 
And we say, Paul, how do you thank your God? Well, look how he thanks him. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. How many times does Paul emphasize how often he's thankful for the church? He says, always in every prayer for you all, in all my remembrance of you. What Paul's saying is this, there is never a time that goes by that when the church of Philippi comes to his mind, he isn't filled with this overwhelming joy and thankfulness. And there's a connection here. Paul, as he lives his life, what we see here in verses 3 and 4 is he remembers the church. And as he remembers the church, he prays for the church. And having remembered and then prayed for the church, he rejoices in the work that he sees God doing in the church. He remembers, he prays, and he rejoices. And so my question, as I see Paul experiencing this joy in the church of Philippi, my question is, what can produce this kind of fellowship for us? What kind of church do we need to be to experience this kind of joy? Let's be honest here. Who in this room can say that there is anybody in their life that every time they walk into the room, every time they come to remembrance of them, that you are joyful in that person? The reality is that for each of us, there's no one like that. Think about even our kids. Our kids who, you know, have the most maybe abounding love for us. I'm thinking particularly of my young kids. When I walk in the door, sometimes they remember me and there's so much joy. They come tackling me. They're so excited to see me. Other times I come in and it's like they don't even know who I am. And I get the side eye, like, who is this guy and what's he doing here? What about in our marriage relationships? Like the person that we're walking closely, closest with in life. Is there this always forever, every time we think of you, joy in our marriage. The reality is that maybe on our honeymoon there was, but then you flash forward a year later and your spouse has gained the honeymoon 20 and they're sitting on the couch, they're watching TV, their chips, their fingers are covered in Dorito dust, they're licking them off their finger and there's no thankfulness. You're just disgusted. And so my question is, what does it take in fellowship, what does it take for there to, be, to, to produce this kind of overwhelming thankfulness? Well, Paul, he tells us in verse 5, look what it says in verse 5. He says, this overwhelming thankfulness is happening in me because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The joy that Paul has in the church abounds in his heart because at every remembrance of them, every time he remembers them, he's reminded that he has a partnership with them that was in the gospel from the first day until now. The fellowship of Paul and the church at Philippi, it's founded on the fact that the gospel has saved them both, it's sanctifying them both, and it's going to bring them both to glory. It's this fellowship that's founded on the gospel. This idea of partnership is all over the New Testament. It's especially a theme of the, of the book of Philippians. And the Greek word for it is koinonia. And you might have heard this word before. It's really significant. It's, it's a koinonia fellowship. And koinonia can refer to any sort of partnership, whether it's marriage, whether it's business, or whether it's church like we're talking about. And it really is a partnership that's bound by mutual interests. What Paul's saying here is that he and the church of Philippi have a partnership, a koinonia fellowship that is founded in the, the gospel and all the work that it has done in them is doing in them and, and how it is igniting them both for a mission. 
Now, as I think about the last eight years at Redemption Durham, there's a thankfulness that abounds in my heart because I've experienced this kind of fellowship that's been founded in the gospel. Eight years ago, when Amber and I came to Durham, we were young and we were hungry, and we were wanting to serve under a leadership that had a, what we felt like was a biblical vision for ministry. And I had gone to seminary, and I had really been fired up about the word, what the Word of God said about the church and what the, how the church was to function and what the church was to do. But the reality was is that we were, we were serving in churches where they were doing good things, but they weren't founded on the right thing. They were doing things like trying to be sensitive to seekers or trying to build ministries around family health, but they did that, we felt, at the cost of the gospel. And so we were so hungry. We just wanted to serve under leadership that we felt was passionate about the gospel. The thing about, that excited us as we thought about coming to Redemption Durham was this very fact, that there was a church that had such a deep passion and belief about the gospel. We loved the mission statement that's so gospel-oriented to see lost people saved and saved people matured and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. We love that the foundation of the church was Jesus Christ, that there's really this belief that nothing can happen apart from the preaching, proclamation, and ministry of the gospel. And as we've been here for eight years now, serving and participating in the life of this church that's been founded on the gospel, we can say now, having endured those eight years, that it's only bringing us more and more joy. Because this partnership, just like Paul in the church of Philippi, this partnership that began for us eight years ago has only increased and increased. Increasingly, more people in this church have had more influence in us. In a way that as I think about my growth, and as my wife and I think about our growth over these past eight years, we just can't disconnect it from the people in this church. That's how God has used people in the church to change us. I think specifically of the way that God has used this church to prepare me for ministry, to step into this next phase of life. This was maybe one of the greatest appeals for Amber and I as we came to Durham. We just wanted to be under godly leadership, and we wanted to be mentored. We wanted our gifts to be sharpened. And we, we, we recognized we couldn't do that by ourselves. And we had the knowledge, but we just didn't have the practice and the care of someone refining the instrument that we wanted to be in God's hands. This is why it's been such a huge gift to serve under the godly leadership at Redemption Durham. This is why I'm so thankful for Pastor Ian. If Pastor Ian has impressed one thing, definitely on me, but I just believe as a staff and elders and ultimately as a church, it's that the most important ministry qualification is character. That you must lead with integrity first. That it's good to have great gifts. It's good to be talented, but that cannot replace integrity. Pastor Ian's one of the most gifted theological minds that I know. And so to sit under his leadership and to learn more about the Bible has been a blessing, but I believe that with his theological giftedness, there's real, really a rare pastoral heart you see with it. Not just a desire to inform the mind, but a desire to change the heart. And I can say with utmost sincerity, it's been such a joy for me to firsthand experience him 
as he uses his gifts for the glory of God with a heart of integrity. That example has taught me so much. I'm thankful for the elders who every step of the way, as I've participated, especially in youth ministry, have given me constant support, who in the hardest days and hardest moments and moments of deepest suffering have been practically for me the hands and feet and mouth of Jesus Christ. God's used this church to shape me for ministry. I also just think practically about how God's used this to teach me what it meant to be a father and what it meant to be a husband. When Amber and I came here, we were only married for two years. We didn't have any kids. I never grew up in a Christian home, so, and I, my dad was never part of the picture, so I really didn't have a, a, an understanding of what it meant to be a godly husband, especially didn't have an understanding or an example of what it meant to be a godly father. Redemption Durham's always going to have a special place in my heart because this is where we had our three daughters, each of them here. I remember having my first daughter, Mia, I remember looking at her and my first thought being like, what do you do with this thing? And you're like checking the back. You're like, where does it plug in? Like, how do, you, how do you work this thing? But from that day forward, I started looking at people around me who were setting examples for me of what it meant to shepherd your wife and care for her like Christ does the church. What it meant to disciple and teach your children I think really practically about Mark Sylvester. If I can just talk about someone who's had so much influence in my life, I don't know if I could list anyone more than Mark. I feel like the wisdom that he's given me at times when he doesn't even know it, I feel like the way that I've observed his life from afar at times has been such a blessing to me. I don't know where I'd be apart from his godly example. I feel like I could write a whole book Maybe a series of books of things that he said to me over the years, of things that he said that maybe he doesn't even think to, he's trying to impact me with, but I've just taken and, and written in my heart. Maybe one day I will write a book and put my name on it and be like, really smart things Miles has thought of, and I'll publish it, but it's just all plagiarized from Mark, and he'll be too humble to even probably talk about it. I'm thankful for many people that have played this role in my life. Obviously all the staff, but I think of People like my best friend Dan Sylvester and his wife Virginia. I think of my small group leaders when I first came here, Steve and Karen Fisher and Ben and Kaylee McEntee, who walked beside me and showed me what it looked like to live for Christ. I think of some of my closest friends, Chad and Amanda Cornelius and Andrew and Jenny Locke. And I, one of my greatest worries in this message is that I didn't name you. And so if you feel like, hey, he's not naming me, I mean you too. There have been people that God has used in this church to show me what it looks like to live like Christ. These people have imitated Christ, have sought to live a life of Christ-likeness, and as Amber and I have watched them and observed them, we've been changed. We're so thankful for their influence in our life. We can't think of ways that God has grown us apart from people's influence. Isn't it interesting? Paul's such a thankful person. He's, he's never really thankful for things, is he? He's always thankful for people. Now, why do I say all this? I say all this because I want you to understand that to be plugged into a healthy, joy-producing church means that the longer you're plugged in, the more your heart will be for the people who have impacted your life. And the more your heart will be to impact other people's life. And so you should have a list, very much like this, of people in this church, if you've been plugged in for 
any amount of time, you should have a list of people who have influenced you and impacted you, in which you can't think of the ways that God has worked in your life apart from these people's influence. Not only that, can I ask you this question, this question, church? You should be thinking of the influence that you can have in other people's life. Can I ask you this? Who right now, in their prayers, every time they are thinking of you, is thanking God because of the influence you have in their life? Whose life are you so deeply invested in that when they think about their growth, they can't think about it apart from you because you've been so invested in them, pouring into them, discipling them, exhorting them, teaching them what you're learning about God, encouraging them. Who's God using you to transform? This is the way life in the church was meant to be. The church was meant to function so that our growth was very connected to specific people. This is why Paul says what he does in verse 6. We know this verse well. Look at what it says in Philippians 1, verse 6. It says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is a well-known verse for many of us. It's a promise of God's eternal security over his children. That if he began a good work in you, he will accomplish it. But I fear that as many of us love this verse, we've kind of ripped it out of its context. We take this verse to mean that Paul's talking about like his pers- God's personal work in us, his individual work in us. Now, I think it's true that if God starts an individual work in you, he is going to bring that individual work to completion. God isn't like some of us husbands who start a work, and I'm thinking of my front foyer right now very specifically, and do not finish it. God always finishes his work. I'm seeing some wives nudging their husbands, saying you got to be more like God in this area, okay? you got to finish that work. God always finishes his work. But this is how Paul is saying God does finish his work. The the question that Paul's answering is, how does God finish his work in us? And the answer is through the fellowship of the church. The reason why Paul has confidence is because the church of Philippi is participating in koinonia fellowship. When you're part of a church where true fellowship that is grounded in the gospel is happening, then you can't help but to grow. And that's been the experience of my wife and I at this church. That if you're just even plugged into something like a small group, it becomes very awkward. The more you plug into this church, it becomes very awkward not to be growing. It becomes very awkward to kind of become stagnant in your walk with Christ. And what God does for us through the church is he brings people, if we're plugged into something like a small group or serving somewhere or a fellowship of people that are true, experiencing true koinonia fellowship, what happens is when we stop growing, someone comes alongside us and kind of gives us a kick. It's time to get going. And the only way that you can not grow is if you're just kind of not plugged in. If you're just kind of here as a, a witness of what's going on. Not participating in the fellowship of the church. This is the way that God seeks to accomplish our growth. It's through the fellowship of the church. Which leads us to our next point. The joy-producing church, it pursues a faith that feasts on his grace. Part of the reason why being plugged actively in a, in a koinonia fellowship way into a church leads to our growth is because church life is really kind of like a communal feast where through the lives of other people, we're coming to feast at a banquet of God's grace day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out. As we do life together, 
It's kind of like this corporate feast where we come together to delight in the grace that God is showing each of us individually. This is the connection Paul speaks about in verse 7. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you. Paul's just expressed his thankfulness for the church. And now he wants to justify his feelings of thankfulness. Why does he feel this way? And so he goes on to explain what this fellowship has been like for him. It's a fellowship that's so different than any other fellowship we experience in the world. It's a love that delights more deeply than the fellowship of the world. And so Paul says in verse 7 that he, it's right for me to feel this way about you all. Look what he says, because I hold you in my heart. What does it mean to hold someone in your heart? Well, the heart in Scripture is the seat of your affections. It's like your control center. Your heart is the thing that inclines you to one thing or to the other. It's a place where your emotions happen. And for Paul to say, I hold you in my heart, what he's saying is, I want the greatest good for you. My heart is inclined to you. My desire is for your good. I hold you in my heart. But what is it that produces this love in Paul? Look what it says in verse 7. He says, I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. In this word, partaker, is the same root of the word that we read earlier, partnership. It's koinonia. This is koinonia fellowship. And what Paul has been saying is that this fellowship that we have endured has been like coming together to a table to partake together in the grace of God. To do this corporately. By knowing this church, Paul literally partook in the grace of God. It was like a funnel, funneling God's grace into his life. This is why fellowship is a feast of faith. Whenever you invest yourself into someone else's life, it's like you're pulling up a chair to the table and delighting in the food of God's grace in their life. But if you're trying to participate in the life of the church without investing yourself in the lives of other people, you're missing out on God's grace. This becomes like a faith hack for you. You want a faith hack? Surround yourself with other people that God is working in and ask them how God is working in them. This is one of my favorite things about small group. It's when you get together in a circle of accountability and you start sharing the things that God is teaching each of those people. It's like a faith hack. You don't have to do any of the work. This is like the dream of every high school student. You don't have to do any of the work, but you reap all of the reward. As this person teaches you of the things that God is teaching them. You get to partake of the grace that God is showing them in their scripture reading, in their life. You get to take it for your own. This is what we need to understand. Each encounter we have with a brother or a sister in Christ is an opportunity to truly fellowship. And it becomes an opportunity to truly see God's grace and delight in the goodness of God's grace in their life. But when we keep our fellowship at sort of like this church potluck, gather around the punch bowl, light conversation, when we keep our fellowship light, we miss out on the grace that God is working in people's life. And so let me encourage you to do this, to dig into people's lives, to understand how God is graciously working in that person's life. Let the work that God is doing in that person in your deepest and darkest moments encourage you that God can do that very work in yourself. 
There's so many ways that you can practically partake of the grace that God is pouring into other people's life. You can do it in small group as you sit around and encourage one another with the way that God is teaching you. You can do it immediately after this message. How about instead of us talking about the Leafs lost last night, let's just scrap that. Let's get some security to take the person who just said amen, take him out. Let's scrap that conversation and let's talk about maybe something that was encouraging from the message. Let's delight in the grace that God is showing another person by saying like, hey, what did you read in God's word that really spoke to you this week that really showed you of God's goodness and of God's grace? Let's partake in the grace that God is showing other people. As you do this, you know what happens? It intensifies your love for that person. This is why after Paul says that you've been partakers of me, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. See, there's a very practical way that the church of Philippi stood beside Paul in his suffering. Look what he says in verse 8. His, his love for the church intensifies because he's been participating in this fellowship. And the same thing happens for us. He says in verse 8, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul has already said about this church, I hold you in my heart. But after thinking and meditating on the fellowship that they've shared together in the deepest, darkest moments of his suffering, the the language only intensifies more and more. Paul says he yearns for them. Listen, when was the last time you looked at a brother and a sister in the eyes and said as creepily as you could, I yearn for you. That's not language we use. Maybe don't, I don't suggest doing that after the service, okay? That might come off a little weird in our context. But that is to say that there is some application here for us. Paul is definitely okay to use very intense words of affection for brothers and sisters in the life of the church because of the way that they have fellowshiped around the grace of God together. He says, I yearn for you but it doesn't stop there. It intensifies. He says, I yearn for you with all, or yearn for you all with the affection. This word infection, it has its root word in kind of like your inner, inner insides. Is that a good word to use? I think some of the youth are going to make fun of me for that, saying that, your inner insides. It's like your bowels. And the idea that Paul is getting at here is that he yearns for this church with like this kind of love that you just can't express. It comes from your innermost being. It's this affection. But it intensifies once again because not only does he yearn for them, not only does he yearn for them with affection, look at the affection that he yearns for them with. It's the affection of Christ Jesus. That means that as Paul loves the church, very literally, the church is being loved with the love of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to fellowship in the church. That if you are a member of the church, fellowshipping in the life of the church, you are saved by Christ, and being saved by Christ, you are therefore theologically united to Christ. Christ is living inside of you. This is our union with Christ. Therefore, to fellowship with someone in the life of the church and for them to love you and for you to love them and for your feelings of affection for each other to be intensifying is very much to be loved by Jesus Christ himself. Fellowship with those in 
The life of the church is to fellowship with Jesus himself. This is why the church is so crucial for our growth, because through the love of other people, we experience and receive the love of Jesus Christ. This is why the more involved we are with the life and the mission of the church, we more, the more we experience the grace of Jesus Christ. Because as we commit to living life with brothers and sisters in the church, we're committing to linking ourselves to experiencing the very love of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to fellowship in the life of the church. As I think about examples of people in our church who have loved very practically Amber and I, I can't think of a better example than Pastor Brian. And I don't want to look at him anymore because I almost cried with Mark and I couldn't find out where he was. So I don't want to look at him anymore, but I don't think there's a better example of a godly shepherd who shepherds his sheep with love. And I want you to know that there are times where when I think of Pastor Brian, it's not like Paul for me where every remembrance of Pastor Brian is joy for me. I know you won't believe this, but I heard a great message on exhortation a few weeks ago, and so I feel the need to maybe exhort my brother right now. So let me speak very specifically to you. When the next youth director comes, you cannot scare him anymore. You would think it's in Brian's job description that he has to scare me once a month. And I walk around the church office constantly terrified that out from underneath the darkness of a desk or hiding around a corner or hiding in the bathroom when I'm getting ready to go is going to come Pastor Brian jumping out, screaming to terrify me. I know what you're thinking. He's making this all up. There's no way Pastor Brian could do that. He's such a godly shepherd. He would never do that. But I'm honest. Sometimes the only thing Brian has shepherded me to is to change my pants because he scared me (laughs) so much. There's the first point of three things I've wanted to say but haven't been able to until now of that message. All joking aside, I am so thankful for Brian. First thing you understand when you meet Pastor Brian is that he loves Jesus Christ. But as you come to know him more and more, you come to realize that he loves the church with such a knowledge of the sheep, with such a discernment about what will be for their good, such a clarity of vision of, of how to progress the church closer and closer to maturity. He lives and breathes a love for this church. And he's been such an example to me of what it means to be a shepherd, someone who cares for the sheep, someone who loves the sheep. He's shown me the need of a pastor to provide intentional and specific care to everyone who's called to the church. As Amber and I have done life at this church, we've experienced this loving care It feels like on a weekly basis, people who have brought us meals, people who have blessed blessed us with rest when we've needed rest. When we came here, we didn't have a house, and there are multiple people in the life of this family who made it very possible for us to rent something from them. When we eventually got into the market, it was only because of a family in this church that made it possible for us. Amber and I know that we serve the God who cares for the birds of the field, We know that our God can help us because he's the one who created all things. But very practically, we've experienced the help of God through the church. As we think about life here, we felt so cared for, so loved by the Lord because he's been using his servants to care and love us. And it's been very practically Christ showing us, Amber and I, of his love for us. And so here's the question for you as a church. How can you participate in someone's life like that? 
is it today? Maybe it's an action today. What action can you take to show someone, not your love, not how great you are, to show someone the greatness of the love of Jesus Christ as Jesus uses you as an instrument in their life? We feast on his grace together. This is the third thing that a joy-producing church pursues that we see in the chapter 1 of the book of Philippians. The third thing that a joy-producing church pursues is a future that focuses on growth. A future that focuses on growth. Now, Paul shifts his, vi- his vision in verses 9 to 11. Verses 3 to 8, he's really been looking backwards. He's been reflecting on all that God has accomplished in their koinonia fellowship, and his heart is overwhelming with thankfulness. But now Paul takes his vision off the past, and he sets his vision on the future. He asks, what do I desire for the future of this church? And it's something very practically for me to think about, because I know I'll be always closely united with this church, but as I leave, what is my desire for this church? And I can say with confidence that it's very much the same as Paul's. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. What's Paul's desire for the church? Well, his desire is bound up in those words more and more. Paul's just spent verses 3 to 8 talking about a love that I think very few of us have ever experienced, a love that the church of Philippi had for Paul, a love that Paul had for the church of Philippi. He calls it the very affection of Jesus Christ. It's this deep love, this testimony of God graciously working in Paul and the church to bring about this unique koinonia fellowship. But then what does he pray for? He says, more and more. Paul's delighting in the love that the church has shown him, but what does he want? He wants more. God desires growth in the church of Philippi. This is the heart of love that he has for the church that we were talking about earlier as he thinks about the Philippians' best interest. He thinks about their growth. As he thinks about their love for each other, he desires more of it. This is the heartbeat of Paul. Paul writes this letter close to the end of his life, and and yet, if you flip over a page in chapter 3, verse 12, look at the heartbeat of Paul. It's always for growth. Chapter 3, verse 12, he says, not that, talking about the resurrection of the dead and the perfection that he'll experience in heaven, he says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. This is what Paul's prayer for the church is. This is what Paul's desire for the church is. It's the same desire that he has for his own life, that they would grow increasingly in their love for God. But notice what Paul's teaching us. Paul's really teaching us about a theology of growth in these verses. And notice what he teaches us first. He he teaches us first that growth depends on God. You can't grow apart from God's work in your life. If you want to grow, the first thing you must do is depend on God. We say, where are you getting that from the text? Well, from the very fact that Paul prays for growth. Why does Paul pray here and not just say, church, go and grow? Because Paul believes that nothing significant can happen apart from prayer. 
And Paul lifts the church up in prayer because he desires this to be accomplished in his life. And he, desire, he understands that apart from depending on God, this cannot be accomplished in their life. Listen, church, as your eyes are focused on future growth, it will not come apart from you being completely dependent on the Lord. This has been my experience week in and week out at youth ministry. If I could summarize youth ministry, I I think every Tuesday night we meet here and there's about 50 to 60 students that show up on a Tuesday night. I don't know if some of you know of the amazing things that God is doing in the life of the youth of our church, but it's one of the the most incredible things. And week in and week out we meet with the leaders and I I just, I love my leaders so much. I'm so thankful for them. And people have said, I don't know how the youth group's going to continue without you here. And I said, it never continued because of anything I ever did. It was always because of the strength of the leaders who lead youth. You need to know that the youth in this church are in great hands. They're in amazing hands. These leaders, I'm so thankful for them, so thankful for their gifting, so thankful for their passion for the youth. It's been such a, a joy for me to serve alongside them and really see them in many ways excel, even my ability to minister to the youth. But one of the greatest joys of participating in ministry with these, these leaders has been we meet in that prayer room at the back of the, this worship center every Tuesday night, and we cry out to God. And, and you know what we cry out week in and week out? We just say, God, we can't do this apart from you. And we know we got to work hard, and I don't think anyone works harder than, than the youth leaders who give up a night of their week after a long day of work to come and hang out with youth, who are great people too. But they give up so much, they sacrifice so much, and we, and we meet there together to just say, God, we depend on you. We can't do this apart from you. And you know what happens? God's been so faithful in the lives of our youth to save them, to sanctify them, to mold their minds, to think biblically in a, in a world that is really broken by sin. God is doing amazing things in the life of our youth as our leaders depend on him and trust that he will give the growth. And so let me compel you, church, to learn from their example, to turn to the Lord, to trust in him, to do great things in your midst, to trust that when you depend on him, he gives you growth. But Paul's here, he's building a theology of growth for us. And the first thing is we need to depend on him. But the second thing is that growth can't happen apart from knowledge abounding in us. And so he says that he wants us to abound. He wants us to, uh, in verse 9, he says, my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And he says, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. Paul's desire is an abounding knowledge of God, a deeper understanding of who God is that leads to a fruitfulness in life. It's a knowledge that leads to a discernment in them where they're able to approve what is excellent, where they're able to tell what is right or wrong, where they're able to know the way that they should go. One of the things that Amber and I have been most thankful for in this church is the way that when you sit under the preaching of this church, you grow in knowledge. It's one of the most amazing gifts that I think Pastor Ian has is the gift to open up the scriptures and teach from it in such a deep way that is also impactful and life-changing. A few weeks ago, I went and preached at Redemption New Market, and I realized that the only preaching I'm going to hear anymore is the preaching of myself. And my wife sat there, and she said, oh, great, i got to listen to this guy some more. One of the things I'm going to miss the most is preaching that challenges the mind and grows a depth of, a depth of understanding. 
And then Pastor Ian goes on vacation, and, and you think, okay, maybe I'll get a break. But then Pastor Brian comes up, or Mark comes up, or Rowan comes up, or John comes up, and they preach, and it's the same amount of depth. This pulpit for 11 years has been blessed by the Lord with a teaching that when you engage with it, drives you deeper into his word, into an understanding of all that he has done from the beginning to the end in Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for this pulpit. I'm so thankful for how it has drawn me time and time again to the glory of Jesus Christ, to grow in a knowledge that leads to a love. And so church, let me challenge you in this way. Sitting under the preaching that you sit under week in and week out, lean into it. Lean into the preaching. Don't let it just happen. Come every week with a desire to learn, praying, God, open my eyes to see your glory through this message. Open your notebook. Take notes. Ask questions. Engage with the text. And trust that as you do that, God is going to drive you deeper into a knowledge of him. It's honestly one of the things that I will miss the most. But notice that Paul is not content with just the knowledge of his word. And verses second half of verse 10 to 11, he says that there's a point to knowledge, and it's that we might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. What Paul's saying here is that knowledge, it needs to drive to application in your life. Knowledge needs to change you, that there's no point in knowing anything if it doesn't change and transform your life. Now, there are a million ways that I could go with this, and I would love to just Spend some time thinking about how the fact, uh, the fact that you, can't, you don't really know anything if it doesn't transform your life. I'd love to think about what it means to apply the Word of God. But instead, I just want to thank you as a church. And as I think about this, I think about all of you speaking to everyone. But as I look around... As I think about what it means to know God in a way that transforms and changes your life, I see that modeled by so many of you. I see so many pictures of God's transforming grace. I look at you, and having known many of you for eight years, having known some of you for a shorter amount of time, there are so many people I see that you are not like who you were a few years ago. Even some of you a few months ago, God has been so gracious in transforming you and changing you because you have taken his word And you have applied it to your life in so many ways. And we never do this perfectly. But I I just commend you as a church that you have done it so well in so many ways. That in so many ways, so many of you are pursuing the Lord and pursuing growth in the Lord. There are so many people that I look to here as pictures of transforming grace, as models of what it means to grow in the life of the church. I'm thinking about Paul, who, I'm not talking about the Apostle Paul here, I'm talking about the British Paul in our church, who says his name like Paul, which I'll miss a lot. That'll be something I really miss, Paul. Some of you guys will say that, understand what I'm talking about next time you hear him say his name. But I think about Paul, and I think, I don't know if there's a model of someone who has grown more in the last few years, who has come to, to a point where he, day in and day out, mentors me and changes me by the things that he says. He has such a passion for the Lord to be used by the Lord, and he's modeled for me growth. I think that's just one example of many of you in here who I look at, and I remember times when your life was very different, and there was sin that you were battling with that you don't battle with anymore, and you've overcome because you've sought to apply the word 
in your life. I think of my small people who have been in my small group. So many examples. I could go on literally forever, naming names. I look around the room and see people who have been changed by the grace of God, but instead I just want to say thank you to Redemption Church. Instead, I just want to say thank you for the way that you've modeled transformation for me. Thank you for the ways that you have cared for Amber and I as you've set your eyes on the Lord. Thank you for the ways that you've compelled Amber and I to be changed by the grace of God, as, as God's grace has changed you. As I think about the ending of this passage, I don't think there's any more fitting way for Paul to end this. He says that all this happens, in verse 11, to the glory and to the praise of God. The product of God's grace transforming lives in this church has been his glory. So this is where Paul goes, and this is where my heart goes. Is that this church, for the whole time that we have been here, has been transformed according to the grace of God, to the glory of God. And Amber and I, we look back at our time in this church, and this is our resounding feeling. God has gotten the glory. God has used this church. We can't express to you the love that we have for this church. It'll forever hold a spot in my heart. I'm so thankful to be called to a place that's so close. I'm so thankful that there'll, there'll continue to be a fellowship between our churches and us. And as I think about my desire for you, my desire is Paul's, that you would grow. That what Amber and I have experienced here and growing so much in the Lord, that you would experience it more and more. That your love would abound more and more. And so I spent time thinking, what can I do? What can I do for this church? I love this church so much. I want to serve this church. And I think the example of what I can do for this church is right here. And it's when Paul says, it's my prayer. Paul prays for the church, understanding that it's God who's going to accomplish a great work in this. It's not me. I'm going to leave and someone's going to come. They're probably going to be better than me in a lot of ways. And the youth can testify to that in many ways. But God's going to continue to be gracious in you. Foundation of this church is not Pastor Ian. The foundation of this church is not Pastor Brian. It's not elders. It's not the small group leaders. It is very much Jesus Christ. And he is the one who's going to accomplish the work in you. So thankful that the God that I serve, that I will serve in Redemption Durham, is that same God who will be working there, who will be working in you. And so in a few weeks, I'm going to depart from here, and the elders are going to pray for me. But can I just take this moment to pray for you, church? Let me pray for you. Father, God, thank you. Thank you for this church, God. God, thank you for the funnel of grace that it's been in my own life. Lord, thank you that you have shown and revealed yourself very practically your love to me and so many people in this church, God. And it's from the deepest place in my heart that I just express that I'm, I'm going to miss it here. Lord, that I love these people. I'm so thankful for them. I'm so thankful for their commitment to you. And God, it's from the deepest part of my heart that I desire that, that you would continue to work in them, Lord. Cause their love for you, their love for each other, this koinonia fellowship to abound more and more to your glory. God, it's got to be from you. It's got to be from you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would accomplish this great work. I know that you will do it, Lord. You're so faithful to us. You've been so faithful to Amber and me. And God, you will be so faithful to this church. And so we give you all the praise. God, we pray this all in the name of your son. Amen.